Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, making the case for follicular lymphoma therapy. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. In this podcast series, our faculty will discuss follicular lymphoma, its management, first, second, and third line treatments, including some of the newer therapies. For example, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, copanlicib and duvelisib, and the CAR T-cell inhibitors, including Axacel, Lisacel, and Tisacel, as well as bispecific antibodies such as Mosentuzumab. In this episode, Dr. Christopher Flowers and Dr. Loretta Nastapil discuss the many factors that should be taken into account when selecting and sequencing follicular lymphoma therapy. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL4. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Flowers is a professor and ad interim division head in the Division of Cancer Medicine in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. Dr. Nastapil is an associate professor also in the Department of Lymphoma Myeloma at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, Houston. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Flowers will begin our discussion. It's a pleasure to have you back, uh, Dr. Nastapil, to talk more about follicular lymphoma and the various uh, therapies. We'll talk now uh, across the spectrum of therapies for follicular lymphoma. And we talked our last podcast about some of the challenges of sequencing therapy in follicular lymphoma. Uh, but uh, as we think through that, uh, that issue, how do you talk through that at the beginning with a patient with follicular lymphoma, knowing that this is a patient when they first get a diagnosis, may or may not need to start therapy, but the likelihood that over the lifetime of their therapy, over the lifetime of their disease, that they may need to have multiple lines of therapy? How do you prepare them for that uh, potential outcome in the management of follicular lymphoma? The analogy I use, which who knows how well it's uh, received, but th- this is always a marathon, not a sprint. And so we always take into consideration where we start, how much progress we've made, both in terms of uh, remission duration for the patient, but also how has the field evolved? There are new therapies that are entering into the treatment landscape nearly every year. So what I may have been excited about five years ago may be vastly different from what I'm excited about today or what I anticipate will be uh, exciting in the next few years. And so at each time point when we're making a treatment decision, we take into account what their prior therapy has been, what their remission duration uh, was, and what their goals of therapy for their next line of treatment is. I think some patients have clear life goals. Oftentimes, um, it may be that they need to get to retirement and they're willing to accept more intensive therapy now if it gives them a longer remission period, so then they can be less concerned about needing ongoing therapy when they're transitioning out of their workplace. It may be that um, they have, you know, vigorous work schedules. And so how much time is spent in the clinic and how much of an impact on quality of life uh, will result as of our choice of therapy. That always factors into our treatment decision. But I think it's hard not to lose sight of how much efficacy we've achieved with prior lines and whether or not we need to 
uh, sort of improve that timeline. If, if I have a disease where it's, they're starting to progress quickly through therapy, because we always set them up for the idea that they're going to do really well and they're going to have longer missions and there's going to be prolonged periods of time where they're not in our office. If that's not true, then that's going to likely impact my decision to pursue more intensive therapy or, or shift gears, for instance, uh, while, while we're managing this disease. How do you approach, you know, discuss this with patients about the longevity of the disease balanced with the expectation they're going to relapse and have more than one course of therapy? As a runner, I really like uh, the analogy that you use, and that's one that I uh, commonly use. Too. But I think that it is really important uh, for uh, patients to really understand that you're approaching the disease one in terms of what the pace of the disease uh, is for any individual patient. Uh, and that therapy will be individualized. Uh, and then uh, secondly, the, the patient really has a lot of input into the ways the treatment decisions that are made. As you said, uh, you know, many of the things that we have been excited about uh, in follicular lymphoma change over time through, uh, throughout a career. And, you know, in my uh, career, there were things that very early on I was uh, very excited about in follicular lymphoma, like vaccine uh, therapies that were tested and never uh, really completely materialized. And other therapies like radioimmunotherapy that uh, came and have gone uh, from uh, the management uh, strategies of patients, and therapies that you know, ten years ago when I was talking to patients like CAR T cell that were never on the horizon and, and may uh, be here to stay as kind of long-standing approaches that uh, can become integrated into the management of the disease over the course. And so, uh, giving patients that perspective on the roles that clinical trials play in the management of a disease that's not uh, considered curable, I think is important. I think the other thing that's important is to uh, give patients a perspective on what incurable really means for follicular lymphoma. I think oftentimes uh, when someone uh, reads about uh, the disease not being cured or curable or, uh, or patients uh, uh, having a disease uh, with a di that diagnosis, uh, they think about uh, much more aggressive behaving cancers, things like pancreatic cancer or metastatic solid tumor cancer, where uh, having a disease that's not curable means that you're going to have a much shortened life expectancy. Uh, and while that's true for a very small number of follicular lymphoma patients, for the vast majority of patients who have follicular lymphoma, you know, if they do well within that first year or two of therapy, they're going to have a life expectancy that is really near normal uh, for aged uh, and uh, matched controls. And so I think it's important to give them that perspective that while they may need to have therapy at various time points uh, based on what the pace of the disease is, uh, that they're likely going to live a very long period of time and have very favorable outcomes. Uh, during the times that they're needing to have treatment and some prolonged period of times when they won't need treatment. So as you uh, take those kinds of factors uh, into play, what are the things that help you to decide uh, what first-line therapy to give uh, for a patient with follicular lymphoma? Generally speaking, I want to give them as long a remission period as possible. And I think why that's important to me is they've been diagnosed with cancer. Inevitably, that's going to shape or even shift their perspective on their life. And, and you can't help but know that mortality is going to come to the forefront of that concern or decisions that are going to be made. And so if I can put them through therapy that's going to be tolerable, but also result in a long first remission, it always makes the discussion about 
the next line of therapy a lot easier. And so I'm, I'm generally going to reach for that chemoimmunotherapy because, in my opinion, I think that probably is going to give them one of the longest remission durations. And I'll, I'll mention some of the caveats or specific populations where that's not true. I have a long discussion about why I would choose bendamustine, for instance, over a CHOP-based backbone and whether or not I would replace rituximab with obinutuzumab, for instance. I do that because my second line approach most commonly right now is going to be lenalidomide and rituximab. So I think that lends itself well to that next sort of best line of therapy I can offer to give them another sort of prolonged period of time where they might be in remission. And then whenever I get to third line, usually at that point, it's, you know, what is the most interesting aspect um, in terms of trials that are available or mechanism of action? And what was the outcome of the last two treatment decisions I made? And what, where do I need to pivot? Where do I need to stay the course? Where that's not necessarily true is if I have a patient who's frailer or who has comorbidities where a chemotherapy backbone is not particularly of interest, then I might use lenalidomide and rituximab frontline. And there is data that even for older patients over 70, uh, the toxicity profile of lenalidomide and rituximab looks to be quite manageable, um, particularly if you do dose adjustment for the lenalidomide dose based off of creatinine clearance. So that might be a consideration for an older patient. I may even lead in with rituximab alone. And then at the first response assessment, which I usually do about three months in, I can decide at that point, do I need to add in more therapy or did I get enough uh, benefit out of four weekly doses of rituximab? So I do think there are um, characteristics that that do factor into how aggressive I'm going to be in frontline, uh, but I do want to try and give them a deep remission. I'm, my goal is complete response. I want that to last a long time so that they could potentially even forget about this for a period of time. And then I'm going to follow that with my next best thing. I will say I completely agree with you on all those points. I think uh, trying to uh, get a, a good and very prolonged response to first-line therapy offers a very meaningful benefit uh, to patients with follicular lymphoma, in my experience. I, I will also say is that with a chemoimmunotherapy regimen, I would say more often than not, uh, patients are surprised by how well they tolerate that compared to how well they thought they might tolerate chemotherapy from the beginning. One of the things that I uh, often say is that as we give more cycles of chemotherapy, uh, we expect that the toxicities are going to get worse and worse and worse uh, over time because uh, each of those chemotherapy regimens uh, compounds upon the, the last one in terms of expected cumulative toxicity. But what uh, I've actually found in practice, and I see that most of my patients see, is that each regimen actually oftentimes gets better and better because they have uh, a better perception of how to deal with those toxicities and manage them through time. Uh, and while we expect theoretically for them to get worse, uh, in practice, they typically are able to manage those uh, quite a bit better. I will say that there are some practitioners out there that use quite a very different approach to follicular lymphoma and think about it as a, a disease that's not curable. And so uh, take approaches that, that are not uh, targeted uh, with curative intent or prolonged remission intent. Uh, and so uh, I tend to use the, the simplest 
uh, and uh, best tolerated uh, regimens first, and that typically involves a regimen like uh, single-agent anti-CD20 antibody as a first therapy, and then when patients relapse to uh, give another single-agent anti-CD20 antibody therapy, and then when patients relapse again to try and do that again until uh, that no longer is effective, and then move on to a chemoimmunotherapy uh, regimen. I think that that is an approach that I've seen uh, out there on many occasions. It's typically not the approach that I take, uh, uh, and one uh, that uh, both uh, clinicians and, and patients uh, uh, seem to choose uh, on occasion, uh, but I think that is part of that patient-physician discussion that needs to take place about how the approach uh, to the disease uh, should be utilized. I think you raised some really important points that I'm just sitting here pondering, thinking why why would there be so vastly different approach and that still be reasonable? And I think one of the things that I think about is that patients with follicular lymphoma, the disease responds quite well to just about anything that we do. And so are there strategies that we can explore to try and minimize the decisions that need to be made um, and inform sort of best practices? And so where we're lacking and why there's so many different approaches that actually do make sense is we don't really have good predictive biomarkers that help us navigate these various options and, and use patient-specific or tumor-specific features to say, this is actually the preferred treatment for you, and it's going to result in X amount of remission, um, and it's better than this other option for these reasons. Do you foresee anything on the horizon that might help inform that discussion a little bit better? So I think we're starting to move in the right directions to be able to address that. Uh, one of the things that we've seen in terms of what we know about uh, biomarkers over time with follicular lymphoma is uh, unlike uh, other cancers uh, that we've seen, uh, like uh, breast cancer or, or lung cancer, or even in some cases, some other types of lymphomas, uh, where the genetic profile of the tumor itself matters most in terms of how things respond uh, and uh, how durable those responses. That's been uh, relatively less true with follicular lymphoma. And what may matter more uh, is how the tumor microenvironment or those immune cells that are around uh, the follicular lymphoma, uh, what do those look like and how does that affect the way that uh, follicular lymphoma will respond to therapy? As we refine that understanding, I'm hopeful that we will identify predictive factors for uh, specific therapies, particularly as we start to develop more immunotherapy-based approaches, you know, considering that rituximab is an immunotherapy-based approach, uh, and so CD20 targeting is one of those, but there now are many, many others uh, that are emerging, uh, including uh, those in later lines of therapy, like CAR T-cell therapy that are directly uh, focused on bringing the immune system, uh, and even therapies that we're testing in clinical trials like bispecific antibodies. And so as we know that follicular lymphoma is a disease uh, that responses depend upon the immune system, we may have better predictive marker biomarkers as we turn towards therapies that are more immune system uh, based. So I am hopeful in that regard. I think the other thing that uh, as we deal uh, with the numbers of treatment approaches that we use in follicular lymphoma currently is to uh, gain better understanding of the sequence of therapy and how sequencing of therapy impacts outcomes overall, not just looking at one particular uh, line of therapy, but a whole host of lines. And we now, uh, through large-scale uh, observational studies, 
are starting to gain those kinds of data around sequence of therapy that may help to uh, inform our choices over time. So as you uh, think through uh, kind of maybe those two uh, major scenarios that we talked about, the kind of approach of giving a, a long uh, remission with the first line of therapy with chemoimmunotherapy, uh, or the kind of approach uh, where someone is giving single agent rituximab as the, the least intensive therapy, how do you use those to think through what do you do in the second line uh, and later lines of therapy? A really important aspect to consider. I think depends on how much tumor I'm dealing with and what their remission duration was following their last treatment and how intensive was that therapy. So I actually do do quite a bit of single agent rituximab for patients who have primarily bone marrow involvement and cytopenias that weren't treatment, but I may not necessarily want to use bendamustine, for instance, in that situation. I may do single agent rituximab, and if they get several year remission out of that, I may consider rituximab alone again at that retreatment time period. That, I would say, is the a less common scenario, but something now that I'm reflecting on, well, what do I actually do versus what do I say I do? I, I do have those patients where I have pursued single-agent rituximab a few times, and they've actually done quite well. So you mentioned the pace or the tempo of the disease. That clearly factors into my decision. Comorbidities, again, how likely are they going to tolerate more intensive therapies? In some ways, it gets harder as we get into later lines just because the options expand. And so there are more therapies to consider in terms of preferred mechanism of action, preferred length of therapy, uh, toxicity profile, how does that factor in? And so it, it does get harder to walk patients through all of the options. But I'm generally approaching this from as much as I can garner from a disease biology standpoint. So I utilize things like PET SUV. I utilize LDH. I consider B symptoms. I consider the uh, amount of tumor that's accumulated over what period of time. Those are all the factors that I consider when I decide, well, how intensive do I need to be? with that next line of therapy, and particularly for those folks that I've started gentle, if I need to escalate because things are you know, growing quickly and all of those other factors are getting uh, significantly worse, I'm going to come at this much more intensively. And the flip side of that coin, if I started more intensively at frontline, they had chemoimmunotherapy, they're relapsing in second line, it's been a long remission duration, They've got lymphoma, but it's not a dramatic amount. I may go gentler in that second line. Um, and so I, I do think what happened before and what is the outcome of that prior decision clearly impacts uh, my next choice. So you talked through a number of scenarios for our patients with uh, follicular lymphoma and the ways that you describe it, it sounds like there's not one right choice uh, that works for all uh, patients with follicular lymphoma. Are there any scenarios uh, where you can describe where there might be a wrong choice, uh, where there are certain regimens that you would say that may not be the most appropriate for uh, a patient in a particular setting? Now, there, there are some things that I've seen that I would have done things differently. I don't know again, who, who could be the judge of whether it was right or wrong. What I, what I don't love to see is when patients will have bendamustine rituximab frontline, and then they relapse, and then they get bendamustine-based approach again in that second line. I hear lots of discussions about, well, how long the remission period was, and whether or not you know it was a reasonable time frame, and you want to retreat. My bias is those patients generally have... Um, 
cytopenias that don't recover very well, the bone marrow clearly takes a hit, then they're at risk for infection. And then I struggle to find that next line of therapy that I can safely administer when they have profound cytopenia. So that's something, given the list of options that exist, I generally don't retreat with bendamustine and particularly not within a short period of time. I think for patients um, who have significant uh, cytopenias and renal insufficiency, you definitely have to be careful with lenalidomide in that setting, particularly if you don't get aggressive about dose reduction of lenalidomide because they're going to have cytopenias. And particularly, again, if, if, if we're dosing at a much higher level than, than should be done in the setting of renal insufficiency, same goes for bendamustine. You got to be careful with significant renal insufficiency and not appropriately uh, dose adjusting or using an alternative choice. Um, I think for uh, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, for instance, copanlicid, if I have a patient who's borderline diabetic and I don't counsel them well enough, they're likely going to have hyperglycemia uh, with, with copanlicid. And so you just need to be sure that you're appropriately setting them up for success, making sure they know what we're watching for, how to adjust diet and how to monitor for uh, hyperglycemia. Uh, so there are settings where if, if there are lots of options available, I might question why one path was chosen. And I guess the last thing I'll say, for instance, the BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib uh, in follicle lymphoma hasn't had much efficacy uh, I'd say it's happening less often now, but years ago, I used to see quite a few patients getting ibrutinib as that third line uh, choice, which again, at least based off of the data to date, that hasn't been an attractive option amongst all the other options. What, what would you say is a wrong choice? That, that's kind of a hard question to answer. Yeah, and that's why I asked it, <laughs> but I think you answered it very well. I, I would completely agree with all the points uh, that you, you made. I would say, uh, you know, in general, uh, what we've seen for the BTK inhibitors, they have not uh, had great responses with a brutinib, and I agree with you there. There may, may there are new data coming out on xanabrutinib that uh, raise that as a potential option, and I think we'll need to see kind of how those uh, data uh, mature to see whether that is a different BTK inhibitor has uh, activity uh, compared to what we've seen with uh, a brutinib. Uh, uh, you know, one of the other uh, points that you made earlier that really goes without saying in uh, patients who have significant uh, cardiovascular disease or have had prior anthracycline therapy, uh, reusing anthracycline therapy uh, in patients with follicular lymphoma is something else uh, that I also would avoid. The other population that I would add to uh, copanlicib are those patients who have hypertension, uh, where you can see infusion-related hypertension uh, uh, that can be exacerbated uh, by copanlicib, and I would tend to avoid those patients who have uncontrolled hypertension uh, from utilizing that agent. Uh, and then uh, maybe one other that I would add uh, to your list uh, are patients uh, who uh, have high tumor burden that you described, particularly with high SUV, uh, but also those patients who have isolated high LDH, uh, considering the use of uh, single-agent rituximab. We know from older studies uh, that when single-agent uh, rituximab was used uh, with uh, high LDH, uh, that that progression-free survival tends to be relatively short. And so uh, talking to patients and expecting to have the same benefits that you typically would see with single-agent rituximab really may not hold uh, quite as true uh, for those patients uh, as well. And so I tend to avoid it in, the, in that particular scenario. 
This has been a really exciting discussion about uh, the, the challenges in managing patients with follicular lymphoma. Uh, I think uh, hopefully you also uh, took away from this how much fun uh, it uh, can be in taking care of patients with uh, follicular lymphoma, uh, given the variety of options that we have for patients uh, and the opportunities to be able to interact and to be able to tailor uh, each treatment selection to the patient's needs uh, and to what they've had in prior lines uh, of therapy and to really provide that personalized care uh, that all of us as oncologists really take pride in. Uh, for, uh, for writing to uh, each of our patients. I uh, look forward to talking to you again uh, in our next uh, podcast, Podcast 5, where we'll talk more about toxicities associated uh, with each of the late agents that we described in the third uh, and later line of therapy. Uh, and we'll uh, see you again in our next podcast. Thanks, Dr. Nastapol. Thank you. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash FL4. Look for all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.